Hello, and welcome to another edition of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin, here with the effervescent Teos Abadia. Uh, well, I try. I just, um, I just watched that video of that young black drummer that uh, plays with the Foo Fighters sometimes and, you know, mm-hmm. like is all over social media. And she was playing Rush, uh, Tom Sawyer. Right. Not only did she have this absurd level of skill, but a joy for it. Right. That I need to find ways to inject back into my life. So I will try to be effervescent, but all I can think of when you say that is, wow, that's the target. Try to be like that person. Okay. Does she also huff tacos? Uh, we were talking about that before. Nandy Bushell is her name. Um, and, uh, yeah, there is something about the smell of a taco that I think if I could, I would want to put it into some magic container. This should be a D and D magic item taco smell and you just uh-huh. like advantage on everything you know right. like, the bag of infinite taco smell yeah okay i i don't see why that can't happen bucknerd bucknerd's do it for us. ever full taco sack <laughs> right taco sack sounds dirty yeah well hey you know <laughs> oh uh I mean, what, what, when you go through the drive recording, Sean. <laughs> yeah. When you go through the drive through at a certain chain restaurant, it's yeah. not really a bag of tacos. It's more a sack. <laughs> it, is, it is a taco sack. All right. So, with the silliness out of the way, we will get into more silliness. That is the D&D news and commentary. Uh, big, big news this week in the world of Wizards of the Coast as it was announced that Cynthia Williams will be taking over for Chris Cox as the new president of Wizards of the Coast, as Mr. Cox becomes the CEO of Hasbro after the death of the previous CEO, uh, Brian Goldner. So big news. So our first Mm -hmm. look is what's her curriculum vitae, if you will. Uh, Well, she worked previously as the general manager and vice president of the gaming ecosystem commercial team uh, for Xbox Gaming at Microsoft, and also was part of the e-commerce and direct-to-consumer businesses at Amazon. So, you know, Seattle area royalty, if you will, in terms Mm -hmm. of having worked at these other places previously. Uh, Not only that, Tim Fields was named the new vice president and general manager for the digital gaming division. Uh, He also had a wealth of experience at previous uh, positions in digital gaming, and he's also a Magic Gathering and D and D player. So, pretty neat. Yeah, um, you know, uh, Chris Cox came from Microsoft, the previous um, president. So, I, you know, it's it's not surprising given the Seattle area that they dip back into that, and given Chris Cox's success, I mean, filling Chris Cox's shoes is almost impossible in terms of. Who knows? It would seem impossible in that Chris Cox has seen the biggest growth that there's been so far. Um, you kind of can't overstate that growth. So we'll see how it goes. CEO hires, you never know to what extent it's what they did versus what the market did. Right. Um, you get all the all the blame or all the uh, praise, regardless of whether you truly were responsible. Exactly. Um, Williams, I mean, this is a giant emphasis on digital, right? And, and so is Tim Fields. Both of these are digital, digital, digital. Uh, primarily video games, but also some e-commerce type stuff. And so I think a lot of the question that, you know, the everyday fan of D&D would have is, well, what, what did I just get? And the answer is you didn't get anything other right. than hopefully good leadership uh, right. that'll carry forward onto that. But, right. You, you hope that the people make the best decisions for the game and the hobby as a whole, and that those decisions succeed based on a never-ending variety of random circumstances that (laughs) may or may not help or hinder those decisions. You can make the best decisions in the world and a global pandemic could ruin those plans, or you could make a decision and a global pandemic could send you uh, into the stratosphere of growth. So who knows, but, you know, good good backgrounds for, for both of those hires, I think. And we'll hope that it bodes well for everything that we love about D and uh, Again, speaking of things that we love about D and D, we are going to, we do know more about the D and D TV show. Ross and Marshall Thurber 
has been given the directorial and writing duties for the pilot script, and he will also be the executive producer. So he was hired by Hasbro's Entertainment Arm E1, and this live-action TV series will be moving forward under his uh, guidance. I like that the article said, Hasbro's wildly popular D&D. Yes, as opposed to the other D&D that's less popular. Uh, apparently <laughs> basement dwelling yes nerdy dandy yeah well, yeah popular. that's us yep so you may not recognize the name but you would probably recognize some of the things that mr thurber has done if you uh own netflix there was a very popular movie with ryan reynolds and the rock called red notice he was, oh, that was the most watched movie ever on Netflix. He re- wrote, directed, and produced it. Wow. So, so I that's have not a, seen it. Have you seen it? I did. I did. And it, yeah. was a, it was a very entertaining, what you would expect from Ryan Reynolds, uh, Gal Gadot, and, and The Rock. Yeah. Uh, you know, very I did see yeah. Thurber's finest work, though. Yeah, I was, that's, that was my next thing. Uh, t- tell us all about his <laughs> finest writing and directorial uh, offering. I mean, I, I don't remember how many Oscars it won, but Dodgeball mm-hmm. is an underdog classic, story. Classic movie. Yes. Yep. So if you are a fan of that Dodgeball movie, uh, another hugely popular, wildly popular sport game, <laughs> apparently. Uh, so we'll see uh, what, what that leads to. But yeah, it's Dodge just, a D20. Yes, yeah, right. That's right. So, you know, just a, a couple of highly entertaining movies and a few other uh, you know, things under his belt in terms of writing and, and directing and producing. So we will look forward to more information about that before the final version is released. And just one other thing to note here that I thought it was interesting. They said uh, adapting the hugely popular game for television had been a sought after assignment with a number of high profile writers offering their take on the material as part of the process. Yeah. Not bad. Yeah, that what you would think then that with that many people throwing their hat in the ring and presumably offering up their vision for what this will be, at least one person would come to the meeting with something that matched the vision that Hasbro, Wizards of the Coast, and E1 had for the project. Yeah, yeah. and a big part of this is that when you make this show, you're selling this show. Mm-hmm. right because this is not cbs that's doing it it's e1 mm-hmm. so e1 is going to sell it to somebody and having thurber associated who's done a bunch of netflix stuff mm-hmm. netflix kind of gains a leg up which i think a lot of people would like to see right netflix is a little more uh, a larger base than if they do it on a smaller you know mm-hmm. and you've got to go sign up for this thing if you want to see it and it has a smaller audience so right. uh, the fact that netflix is prominent is, a, is perhaps a win for a lot mm-hmm. of people here yeah So interesting news, and we will continue to follow it. Getting down into the game portion of our news, there is a new survey. Wizards of the Coast wants to know your thoughts on feats. Feats don't fail me now. So (laughs) what uh, did you take the survey? I took the survey. Um, It's one of these surveys that asks you to, you know, go through all the players' handbook feats and say, you know, how much you like them on some scale. And the problem I always have is like, give me some context to how you want me to answer this. Mm -hmm. Because if I put on my player brain, uh, my ranger loves the sharpshooter feat. Mm -hmm. It is just a meal of damage every Mm -hmm. time I'm there. But as a DM, I think that's a little broken. Mm -hmm. (laughs) By a little, I mean a lot. And as a designer, I think there are so many changes I want to make to all of these feats. And and I almost want to say, you know, the question I most want as a designer is to ask players out there, which, say, three feats should we use as the basis for feats in D&D 5.5? To me, that would be the killer question. What do you wish right. feats were like? Yeah. Choose three. Tell me that those are what they should look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would, be a, that would be an excellent question. Mm. And So, yeah, but it's, it's fine. It's good. I mean, yeah. it's always good to give your, your 
um, feedback because, you know, if, if they, you know, I, I think they'll see what people choose for linguist enough times to get a feel for it. And <laughs> I think the things like sharpshooter are a little tough because you might get both ends of the spectrum, but that's also data they could possibly parse. So we'll see. Yeah. So, so that they don't ask like, is this too powerful? They just ask, do you like it or give it a yeah, rate it, rank it from scale. one to five. And there are other associated things. They're the usual, you know, what edition did you start with? And there are mm-hmm. a few other things that, that they ask. Um, there are some, I forget what the questions were. There's some that get it sort of whether you're a DM or a player sort of angle. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but the bulk of rating the feats is something that I thought was, wow, this is, this is tough to, I wish there was some characterization of the person who's filling this out so that you could know. Right, what they meant. And it's almost fact, like they... there's a lot of different player types and DM types <laughs> and ways to play this yeah. game uh, yeah. that that go very much into uh, what you would yeah. say is an answer. Yeah, I mean, and survey design is is so tough because you can come out with um, mm-hmm. things one way or another way depending on how you ask a question. And so, sure. Yep. Yeah. All right. Well, it's there. It's at their normal survey dot alchemer.com site but you can link to it from the wizards of the coast site uh jeremy crawford continued his talks and this time he talked about monster toughness with todd kendrick and uh what did you take away from this talk um i made it through these videos i'm proud of myself (laughs) i love both these people but um this is a very sort of you know salesy everything's positive kind of thing and it's spun as sort of, oh, monsters are hitting, quote, way, way harder. And uh, this week on my blog, I crunched the numbers and I didn't find any evidence of way, way harder un- unless we're talking about a few things like the Eladrin. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what's interesting is, they, is they, they do say, you know, Jeremy acknowledges DM feedback is that especially at high CRs, they're often a DM is facing a cakewalk. Mm-hmm. So he goes back and says, sometimes the same monster will bulldoze a character or the characters um he says that internal methodology the sort of the secret way that D creates monsters has changed though at first i thought oh they've you know like revised their whole methodology i don't know to what extent that's true because what he really says as a sort of concrete you know what did we change is that monsters were originally measured their cr was assessed based on what wizards of the coast thought that monster what their key thing they did was Mm -hmm. so they might have multiple things they could do and some of those things might be terrible damage wise challenge wise but if you did their main things wizards at least thought that that was you know doing very well Mm -hmm. so they think dms were using bad options and that's why maybe these dms were not seeing the monsters do well so now all of a monster's intended options must reflect that cr so if you have a bow attack, if you have spells, if you have, you know, some special feature, all of those must be mathematically solid for, for being a certain CR. Okay. Um, their second video is about challenge ratings and it says the main intention is to check for a TPK, which I have issues with because that's not the system they wrote. <laughs> but um, yeah. uh, and, and basically says, here are a number of ways that you can on the fly fine tune the challenge of an encounter. Um, and I thought a very, very interesting one, because I don't know that I've heard people say this, is that when you, so, you know, we all know like hit points, right? right. It'll say this hit points and that states the range. Right. So common advice is, hey, anything in that range is valid. Right. I think most people go, yeah, yeah, that's absolutely solid. And if I'm mm-hmm. in a fight, I could just ratchet up to the max and, and if I need to as a DM, and that seems very valid because that's the swing intended range. Well, Jeremy says, when you're dealing damage to a target, you can just use the range that's in there for damage. Okay. So just pick something within the damage range and apply it versus okay. rolling or using the average. So, so on an attack that does 4d10, the average is 22. He's saying just do 40 damage. Do 40. Yep. Okay. And you could just do that at that moment. And I'm like, Ooh, I've never heard that DM advice I, that I can recall. Like that's a, yeah. You can just choose it. I think some players would object to that, but, um, but it's yeah. interesting. Yeah, it, it is interesting. And I didn't watch the videos, but the, you know, the further we get along in fifth edition, after having played fourth and designed for fourth and having played third and designed for third, uh, 
there is just so much random randomness from player to player from mm-hmm. character to character that designing a game that is very very tight mechanically and numerically is practically impossible um so yeah i'm i'm totally down with what he said because i do the same thing on the fly as well right i will i will roll and most of the time i will roll on the table but sometimes i will roll behind the the screen and uh totally make up numbers mm-hmm. if it fits yep. what for for you know to assist the players or to challenge the players right. but the narrative to hit right the right to get that kind of to, to get the best outcome for the story that we're telling mm-hmm. and sometimes that even includes a character dropping to zero right. if if i think that that's going to tell the best story with the understanding that the characters can get this uh unconscious uh character up and back into the fight rather quickly Uh, but it takes so much experience to be able to do that without uh, overwhelming or underwhelming the the party that I sort of like when we interviewed Keith uh, Aman, I just, I want wizards to write the books that he wrote, right? I want them to, to tell me how to run the game, not, you know, how to change the monsters per se, unless that's part of how to run the game. Well, yeah, and, and and I think when I hear what you're saying, it's like there's a two-part design process, right? One part is what is the system you're creating? And the mm-hmm. second part is how are you telling people to use it? Mm-hmm. Because if you just do the one, then the system has to be perfect. Right. And if it isn't, well, what are you going to say about it? And and it's interesting to me sort of the this dichotomy here where where the one video is sort of I think sort of saying our system's really good. Mm-hmm. We've, re- we've revised the, mo- the problem was this, you know, pathway to damage. Mm-hmm. We've revised that. Now your monsters are hitting way, way harder mm-hmm. uh, because now you'll do it correctly. Right. And then the other one is talking about CR and almost saying a different thing of, Hey, just, you know, change right. it up on the fly. And, but, but none of that is in the book. Right. Right. Yeah. And if, if every character at your table has a, a simulacrum, and a shield guardian, right? Uh, I don't care how hard the monsters are going to hit. It just doesn't matter. Yeah. So, you know, we need the advice. Don't let all your characters have simulacrums and shield guardians. Shield guardians. But, but when you, by saying that, the players are then upset because you're taking away that power that they can bring to the table, which makes them feel good. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's this balancing act on all sides that is so hard to hit, to hit. And, you know, we know this as, as players forever and as designers, but there's sort of this unwillingness to say, to say that, you know, and, and I understand why, because you're trying to sell these books. You don't want to say we're just making all this up and yes, we're tweaking as we go, but it's really not going to be much of a difference (laughs) uh, in the long run because every player and character is, is bringing a different thing. So it's just, it's sort of, I get it and I understand. I just, I want to be taught how to run games. Well, and I I think we're going to talk about this when we get to Fizzband. So I'm just going to put a little teaser here that I think we've seen with different D&D products across 5th edition that there are ways to provide that. So you can bridge that gap without it, um, you know, being a, a too much of behind you don't have to say look i made more monster options and they don't matter right or, or mm-hmm. I, I revised my monsters because i need you to buy another book like like you don't have to do that like there, yeah. there are options that at the end of the day people will say oh i really want this book and it doesn't matter that i have 10 others like it right because you did things that are cool yep and there are always those options so we don't have to go to that you know yeah <laughs> true um another news on the dm skilled being Black History Month, we have the Black Creator Spotlight, and you can go and get uh, get the lowdown on Black creators on the DMs Guild. And the big news is that One Bookshelf is uh, waiving a portion of their royalties to give more to those creators. I think it's everything except for what they have to basically pay Wizards, so they, mm-hmm. they can't give away that because they have to pay it 
um, but they're not taking their cut. So all the black creators that are on this page, um, you, they, they get a far larger share yep. um, than they would normally this month. I would be guessing 30% more, but that's just me. <laughs> that's a good uh, guess. Yep. Uh, we have a publication about publishing. Uh, Ian Eason publishes about a year in RPG self-publishing, year two. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, this was a really good read. Um, he shares numbers on his year as a full-time RPG, his second year as a full-time RPG designer. Um, and kind of especially interesting year because it's on the back of a very successful Kickstarter. Um, he brings in this time 40500 as his income for the year, which is nine times more than in year one. Um, and he shares all kinds of details on the income side, many tips there. Um, things like drive-through was 30% better than itch, even after accounting for drive-through's larger fees, because they're just better promotional and discovery tools. And this is something we're seeing a lot in the space, right? The, the, it matters, the platform matters if it has audiences and if it, the audiences are being fed your things. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of interesting tips like that about platforms and choices. Then he goes into his costs. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> ah, there's the rub, Sean. I didn't say net income. I said gross income. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Uh, so his costs were 24000 out of that 40500 And he breaks that down. It's commissions and printing and platform fees and shipping. Uh, the largest designs, no surprise to those of us who have done this, art and graphic design. Mm -hmm. So his net profit is $16,500. He calculates he made about $6.50 an hour or half of the local minimum wage and less than he made working a summer camp as a teenager. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. One last, so, you know, an important thing to think about. Mm -hmm. yeah, for sure. <laughs> uh, pause to reflect. Um, he repeats an important tip that many have shared before. Email is one of the best tools to reach an audience. Twitter is one of the worst. Uh, and he has many other useful tips on his blog. So, so check it out and, and mm -hmm. maybe think about whether you like the products he's made because uh, clearly he could use a better year three. Yes, uh, we have a link in our show notes and you can also go to uncannyspheres.blogspot.com to see Ian's blog. Now we have WizKids Mini Corner with Teos. So oh, let's talk about maximum miniatures. Yes. Uh, Death Saves is now uh, creating an alliance with WizKids, it seems, because they announced a premium mini, uh, a mega mini. This is the company that's a kind of a fashion company owned by actor Joe Manganiello. Um, he is working with WizKids to create the Death Saves Medusa trophy, which if you think of like Clash of the Titans and mm -hmm. the kind of Perseus with his hand out there holding onto the back of the Medusa's head. That's what this is. It literally has the arm coming out of your wall and the, the Medusa's head held there, covered in snakes. Um, and, you know, for just $525, Sean, you can have that. I will get right on starting to earn the money so I can maybe afford that, but <laughs> not. Uh, if you become a RPG designer, you yeah, could, I could use some of your 16500 That's right. That. Yeah. Well, you know, if, uh, they, if, if you are a collector, cool for you, right? Interesting yeah. stuff. Yeah. Well, it, does, it does look very neat. It looks very cool. Uh, they also announced this week that they have miniatures that are based on, I guess, the, the various actors and musicians like Tom Morello that are in Joe Manganiello's um, home game. So they've got a set of minis based on all of their characters um, that you can also buy. So that's coming out. Someday, maybe we'll be famous enough, Teos, that we can just have companies make the things we want. I've been raging against the machine for ages, so you think that... I've heard that about you. <laughs> Speaking of rage, actually, someone who doesn't rage is DM David. Yeah, he doesn't. He's the nicest guy. Yeah, exactly. He's the anti-rager. But he does write a really great blog, and the latest post is From Hamlet to Phandalin, Villages written as a list of locations seem ready to run. They lie. <laughs> great title. Which is the greatest title ever. Uh, and so what DM David here does is explore uh, town locations as part of or fully adventures. 
So he looks at classic towns like Hamlet or Orlane from Against the Cult of the Reptile God and uh, you know how they may look like they are easy to run and ready to run when you read them, but you need more than just these location entries to fully present an, a cool adventure to your players. Yeah, that's a really great take. This is a lovely read, highly recommended. Uh, and I've, I think we've all found this too, right? Where like, if you run yeah. Temple of Elemental Evil and Hamlet before that, and your characters like want something to happen. So then they make something happen, which is often like stealing mm-hmm. everything that a farmer owns. Cause the first house is just some farmer with nothing to offer. And right. it, <laughs> the players create their own drama. Right. It's, it's the, the text that you have in front of you as the DM regardless of how you run will inform what happens. Even if the players aren't seeing the words, just that text and you putting it forward sort of pushes narratives in a certain direction. So in the village of Hamlet, as Teo said, a lot of the descriptions we get are here's this farmhouse. Here are the people that live there. There's 20 gold pieces and arrows hiding underneath a loose floorboard. And even if you don't make that a, a big highlight, that's the information that's in your mind while you're running it. So somehow that will come out during play. <laughs> so unless you, unless the text itself specifically calls forth the, the paths, the tendrils of the adventure, uh, or you do a magnificent job on your own of creating those and presenting them in such a way that the players can follow them, you're just going to end up with an awkward, kludgy opening to your adventure if that's only if that's the only thing you're going into your adventure with. And and, and DM David gives some great tips on on what you should do uh, to avoid this. Um, so consider the players' goals at the location, how those goals could lead to interaction. Mm-hmm. For any non-player characters, the party should meet. Contrive events that lead to the meeting. For any clues, rumors, or hooks the party should uncover, imagine interactions that lead to the disclosure. Mm-hmm. A bunch of other tips in the article, and he provides a couple of examples, including uh, mentioning our Acquisitions Incorporated adventure that you and I worked on as a pos- positive example to emulate. Right. And, and I think that just comes from our experience that we've had this happen at the tables we run. And so you, you just know, like, well, they shouldn't arrive in town on a boring day. Mm-hmm. They should arrive. And in fact, I remember in, in part of the Acquisitions Incorporated uh, adventure that you work when, when it comes to Fandalin that you wrote, uh, when it comes to Fandalin, they arrive as um, an election is being held. Right. Right. So you arrive and, oh, what's going on? And, and that gives you a reason to interact with people. What, what is this crowd here for? What's happening? Right. Tell and us the, about these candidates. Yeah, and the, the leader points to the characters as they come into town and actually calls them out as part of the problem that the town is having, even though the characters have never been there. That's right. Uh, yeah. And and you and Luskin, as Dan David points out, when you arrive at, at the center of town, you, there is a woman who is dealing with a broken wagon while a bard is being tossed out of a bar and the mandolin that he uses is thrown after him, yeah. uh, which, again, invites characters to interact right away. And it's surprisingly effective to say, so this mandolin spinning through the air, what do you do? And someone will probably say, I catch it. Right. Exactly, and now now you're you're invested, right? You're involved, and that's right. why the mandolin's spinning through the air is because it's there for you to catch, right? But you yeah. feel good catching it as a player, and and it starts right. you off at this hole. And and really, what all this breaks down to is, lots of players are actors, not actors A C T O R S, but E R S, right? Mm-hmm. Ones who act, but not all players are actors. Some are reactors. They're more likely to react to what you present than to act on their own. So give them something interesting and fun to react to, to break the ice and to get the story started. Yeah. Yeah. Really nice. I highly recommend this uh, for anybody who's working on a town adventure. This is a a go-to, you know, save this as a PDF and keep it in your file. There you go. That is the news for the week. So we will get into our main topic, which we think We'll be concluding our look at Fizz Bands, Treasury of Dragons, by finishing up some of the things that we noticed in the bestiary. 
Yeah. Uh, so let's dig right in. We left off with the chromatic great worm. So let's talk about the chromatic great worm. And great worm is a new category, right? This is this is the beyond ancient great worm. Yes. Yes, it is. And and I'm I'm not going to try to be like negative Sean here, uh, yeah. but I will probably end up being negative Sean. So I will give our stand standard disclaimer: making rules and monsters and D and D stuff is hard. Yeah. Uh, we are giving our thoughts, not to complain, not to put down the people that created, but just to sort of ramp up the conversation about directions you can go, things you can do, things you can change. Um, when you're doing your own creating, whether it's as a designer or just as a game master. So my question is, we have an ancient dragon already for each uh, chromatic uh, gem and uh, metallic. That's CR 20 some. How often do we use those monsters? And we, do we really need one that's even bigger than them? Right. Uh, yeah, like an I, ancient amethyst is CR 23, right? Yeah. So. Yeah, I I don't I don't need it, uh, but maybe there are players out there that do. I would rather see things in like the three to ten range that are new and cool and interesting. Um, so with the chromatic drag, chromatic great worm, we get the information that they're over twelve hundred years old. They reach a form of apotheosis where they become more and more godlike. Uh, getting the mythic status, no longer needing to eat or drink as the magic of the horde sustains them. Uh, they get legendary resistance four times. They're CR 27. They get a 300 foot cone breath weapon that deals an average of 78 points of damage. I think, uh, I think they watched uh, game of Thrones and you know, where the yeah. dragons like way up above the city and just yeah. strafing that, yeah. you know, the walls. And, and I mean, that is pretty neat. Yep. And so, yeah, it's it's a big honking dragon. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is. I, you know, and later we get the gem great worms and metallic great worms. Um, they're all sort of trying to capture the flavor of the type of dragon they are. So if it's chromatic, you know, they do a breath weapon of the type that they are, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there's some really neat things. Like the gem great worm has some really nice tactical options, like a mass telekinesis. Mm-hmm. that it can do that it, it can just sort of hold you in place and you're trying to save out of that right. uh, i thought that was really neat because for an action that does things you know it really needs to have an impact for it to be worth something mm-hmm. other than breathing or attacking with your normal routine right uh they also get spells like force cage and time stop mm-hmm. those are pretty useful yep uh the spells are interestingly you know clearly labeled as psionics even though they're just the spells i right. think that's interesting yep um the metallic great worms have a sapping breath 300 foot cone again. And if you fail, you're unconscious for a minute and you can keep making saves at the end of your turn to wake. Succeed and you have disadvantage on attacks and saves until next turn. And there are a number of sort of debilitating breaths that appear in these various stat blocks and they work a little differently. So it's, it's sort of interesting design-wise. If you want to have fun, think through why they work differently for different right. tiers. And I'm, I don't know that it always makes sense. I, I didn't yeah. do the analysis, but I just noted the fact that sometimes it's like, you can be woken up. Sometimes it's, you must make a save at the end of your turn. You know, sometimes yeah. it's, it's for a long time, for a short time. So it's just interesting how it works. Yeah. In general, I'm a bigger fan of do things that either do damage or make the combat go faster rather than mm-hmm. make the combat go slower. But I feel like at CR 27, the characters are, are hitting every time they're, you know, to, so having things that take away their actions is actually okay when you're talking about 20, oh, yeah. you know, 20th level characters. Yeah. I, I like dragon stuns. Like in fourth edition, you know, what op- often would happen is your dragon would stun you, breathe on you, take its next round of attacks, mm-hmm. possibly recharge its breath weapon, which would be scary as all get out. And then you yeah. got to go. And right. that all went very quickly and it was all very horrible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it made, like it, it made the combats definitely not pushovers. No. Um, and it was definitely memorable. Uh, mm-hmm. what, what it happened uh, so then we get to our the metal of the gem dragon known as the crystal dragon um, their lore ties them to the positive plane that's filled with life and light um, although they live in desolate frigid regions 
So yeah, I guess that's life and light, but also cold and generally mm-hmm. dark. Uh, but and they're, they're, we're told that they're among the friendliest of the dragons, despite like being, being so very living far away from anyone. But, yeah. So I yeah I guess if you if you get there, it's like me, you know, I never leave the house, but when I do, I'm <laughs> relatively friendly. Uh, so sure, I'm a crystal dragon. Uh, what do they do? Well, they study the stars and they read omens. They take notes about what they learn. They read the future of any who visit them. Uh, they're nurturing and optimistic. And what did what did their lair remind you of? It is totally Superman's Fortress of Solitude. I there mean, it's, let's not even pretend otherwise. But that yeah. it's you know, yeah, a hundred percent. But I do like this sort of idea of like, hey, this could be a you know, it, it's a good dragon type, right? So. Uh, or neutralish, but you know, not not a destroyer of worlds. So why would you interact with it? Well, it it can tell you the future. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, uh, their lair actions are a telepathic charm. They can create a tunnel through the ice, and they can do a starlight beam for radiant damage. Um, regional effects include clear skies, a profusion of crystal, more fortress mm-hmm. of solitude, um, icy sight, which allows clairvoyance through ice and quartz. And uh, positive energy, where creatures regain uh, more more hit points per hit die when resting near them, and the wildlife thrives, even though it's in the cold, frigid lands. So, sure. well, yeah, I guess yeah, that works. Super happy polar bears uh, for the win. Exactly. Uh, what did you want to say about their stat blocks? Um, the scintillating breath is nice. Radiant damage plus the dragon gains temps i like that all in one that's a nice powerful combo to, to for a dm to i think that's a very fun thing for a dungeon master to say like it deals this damage to you and i heal or i you know right. get temps that's really fun um the spells on the other hand are weird things for a boss creature to have uh, especially a dragon that's going to have all these people going after it you know hypnotic pattern like eh, you know that's not what it's going to do um bonus action to teleport 60 feet is always useful for boss type things Mm-hmm. Um, and nothing else really remarkable. All right. So that was where the crystal dragons, then we get to the deep dragons. The lore for them is they are the cousins of the chromatic dragons, although living underground in the underdark has warped them into nightmare creatures. Um, although they do have sort of an interesting story in that they hoard secrets as opposed to necessarily hoarding wealth. Uh, their one layer action I had a question about was deep torpor, which allows them to class cast the slow spell. Um, but it's a layer action. So I'm wondering if you still need to concentrate because it mm-hmm. gives, it gives several situations where the slow spell ends, which would normally be how a spell is used. So I wasn't sure why adding that, but not saying that it, uh, I, I was just, yeah. I, I would use it without the concentration just because I think that would be cool. Yeah. Uh, but it was just a question that came up. A spell as a layer action, does it require concentration? We'll find That's out. That's a good question. Yeah. Uh, their legendary actions are a commanding spore, which forces the creature who fails a wisdom saving throw to attack something near it as a reaction. Then they're... And I have a problem with that because yeah. what's probably the closest thing to you? Yeah, right. The dragon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so they, they can, it was, it was phrased weirdly. It was, it said something like they can target a creature within 30 feet, but then they made it sound like the spores came out from the creature they were targeting rather than it. So it was like, yeah, well, I'm Around trying to figure that out within 30 feet. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so it's like they're, they're summoning the spores from themselves, but it's actually appearing over here around just one creature. So, and that's where that to me sounds like a layer action. Spores come out of the ground right. versus a legendary action, which is a thing it is doing, right? But yep. yeah, I guess maybe it's summoning them or causing them to erupt or something like that. But, yeah. And then there's a spore salvo, which takes a couple of uh, legendary action points to poison folks. So yeah, I've seen that in real life. Yeah, <laughs> haven't we all? Uh, <laughs> next is the Draco Hydra. Uh, which is the mix of a Hydra with a sort of weakened version of Tiamat. Uh, it has the uh, heads of different colored dragons. Uh, it, if, a head, if it takes a certain amount of damage, one of the heads dies, and then it continues to fight until all its heads are dead. 
So, you know, it was, it's an interesting idea. Uh, I, I think that one thing that I thought was cool is it has like one breath weapon for all the heads and it, you know, breathes this mass of everything, but then you have to choose which type of damage it does. And it made me miss like from previous editions, third and fourth, I think both had this where attacks would do multiple types of, of damage. And unless you had resistance or immunity to both, then it affected you normally. And I I think that's needed in this edition now, as we get characters with so much resistance and so much immunity that I want to see that do all forms of damage until one head goes. And then it does the four kinds and then it does the three kinds. Agreed. Yep. Okay, good. I'm glad it's not. Yeah, just... and, and I, I thought of that. I agree with you. I, I, the same thing occurred to me when we were reading the Tiamat stat mm-hmm. block because it's why is Tiamat, you know, only choosing one breath, right? And, and especially when it's on a recharge, like you know, the same as Bahamut. I'm sorry, you have five heads. Like, yeah. Use <laughs> use use those five heads. Use them. Yeah, exactly. And that would be a key thing that well, you're not resisting this unless you resist all of these five things. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, next, we have Draconians. Speaking of spell, uh, not spell jammer. Speaking of Dragonlance, uh, so and Dragon jammer confirmed. Yes, and we have different flavors of Draconian. Uh, we have the Dreadnought, which is a CR four creature that turns to ash with a burst of fire when it dies. And, and so, and if folks don't know, this yeah. is a Dragonlance thing that when yep. you first encounter it, you're like, "What? That's so cool!" And it's that whenever a Draconian dies, they something happens to them. Yep. Um, and a classic one was that it would turn to stone and your weapon be trapped in it yep. so to let go of your weapon and pull out another one, which back then cost actions. And so right. it was like a big deal. Uh, and they've, they've changed these up. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I thought that was, that was very cool. Uh, so the, the dreadnought turns to ash in a burst of fire, which obviously affects people around it. Um, also, when it kills a creature, it can use its reaction to appear exactly as the creature that it killed. And I'm like, oh, that's so cool. We could do so much with that. And then I look at the skills and there's no proficiency in uh, deception oh, wow. or, or anything. So if you're, wow. if you're designing a monster and you give it a cool ability that's going to rely on a skill down the road, at least give them... Uh, proficiency in the skill, especially oh, yeah. since their charisma is plus zero. Plus uh, zero. So you know, make it, make it, make it work. Uh, make the cool thing cool mm-hmm. by having it actually work well. Uh, we also have the Draconian Foot Soldier CR one half. Uh, on its death, it turns into a petrifying gas, and so it, like with most uh, petrification. If you fail one save, you're restrained. If you fail the second save, you're petrified. And it's only, I think it only lasts a minute. Uh, but, you know, it's something that mm-hmm. for a CR one half creature, that's a, that's a big deal. Yeah, that can be a big deal because while you're only petrified for a minute, being out of combat for a minute, if, if you have a party of six and two people uh, are lost for a minute, that can turn pretty, uh, pretty bad for you pretty quickly. So there you go. Which is, which is always so interesting to me that Wizards of the Coast often the low CR creatures are just terrifying. Yeah. And then you know the the CR four we just looked at. Right. I'm like, oh, okay, you deal you know ten fire damage in a burst. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. But petrified, you know, with right. a, from a CR one half, like that is yeah. terrifying. Because when you're petrified, you don't get that saving throw at the end of every turn. Yeah. You're you're there for the long haul. Uh, so, so that's it's, and then if, you know, if you're fighting CR one half creatures, there's a good chance you don't have the magic that you need to right. quickly unpetrify someone. Yeah. So yeah, it's, uh, so you're it's, in it. You just hope yep. the rest of the party can pull it off and you're watching from the sideline. Yeah. It, it, I mean, CR wise, you'd think you'd flip these, right? But. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so we also have a draconian infiltrator CR three, it turns into acid when it dies. Um, the draconian mage is CR two. Its flesh shrivels and its bones explode for force damage within <laughs> 10 feet when it dies. Now, uh, Teos made a note of this, so I wanted to mention it too. Mo- a lot of these creatures have wings, but they do not have a fly speed. So they have some sort of thing that lets them glide or 
not uh, take damage when they fall less than like a hundred feet. But, and this, so this is another thing, like at uh, the Jaconian Mage is CR2 and it's got this glide feature. So basically it can, but as, as it's coming down, it can move two feet for every one foot it falls. It can move horizontally. How often are you going to be having a combat in the air that makes this a cool thing? Yeah. Rarely. So in the stat block itself, make that a bigger feature than just it doesn't fall. Give it a glide attack that it does. It has advantage if it's, yeah. give it, it's a mage, give it a fly or levitate or something that would allow it to use this ability instead of right. just have it. Um, I wanted that for both the dreadnought and the mage. Yeah, uh, I agree. Something more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yep. the mastermind. Oh, did you want to say something? Well, and, and just also, you know, like we talked about with guidance, that this is an, an, an excellent place where the text could also be telling you, hey, here are the kind of encounters to design. Mm-hmm. You know, give them right. height, right? They yeah. like positions of height so they can use these glide features. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that would that would be excellent advice. Um, the Draconian Mastermind is the final one, CR6. When it dies, it lashes out with lightning, arcing up to three creatures. Uh, it can breathe noxious gas. Uh, got invisibility, dimension door, disguise self, uh, sending, and can do a type of a shield spell as a re- shield type effect as a reaction that gains uh, a plus five to its armor class. Yep. Ah, you want to take take out take over from here? Oh, I would love to talk about the dragon blood ooze, uh, which is apparently when a really bad idea to experiment with the fluids of a dragon goes wrong. And you end up with the like liquids of the dragon trying to be a dragon, but just are, are an ooze. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's CR5, amorphous, has spider climb, has pseudopod attacks. And the best part of it I like is this slime breath, which deals acid damage and then pulls you to it. That's yeah. mwah, on uh-huh. flavor, right? Like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Great. Yeah. Really I neat. love this. And I, I was sort of glad that that's where they ended it because they could have done more ooze type things like splitting or and i'm glad they didn't because i think it's cool enough as it is although i want so much now to run like a large one of these oozes when the characters cut it in half like they do with oozes the one half becomes a regular ooze the other half becomes a wormling dragon that then attacks them and then they're going to fight a gargantuan ooze and watch them panic when they say, wait, the last time we fought this, it created a smaller dragon, but this is a gargantuan ooze. If is this going to turn into like an ancient dragon if we cut it in half? Oh, gosh. Yeah. That's just, yeah. you know, I that's what I'm going to do. I'm glad the stat block didn't do it. I'm Are glad I can, I'm yeah. glad I can. Yeah, oozes were so frightening in, in like third edition. I think that was probably the height of their just, mm-hmm. oh God, I can't even imagine this. Um, yeah. I think the best encounter I had was against a gargantuan flesh-eating ooze. And that was, or flesh ooze, sort of called. Yep. That was, yeah, look that up because it's not cool. <laughs> um, uh, our next one is Dragonbone Golem, CR11. It's composed of dragon bones tied, woven together, has a fear aura, a uh, magic, it has magic resistance, a petrifying breath, and then an attack, a pinion attack where it kind of uses its bone claw piece whatever to sort of pin you to the ground a lot of flavor very good i think this is a very nice example a, a number of these monsters have very very solid flavor behind what they're doing which i really like yeah yeah and you could also use that dragon bone golem as a sort of a mini uh draco lich if you needed yeah. to uh it sort of fits that mold yeah so that, that's cool too yeah I like I, I, what good i find point. is i'm digging the monsters the most that actually aren't the dragons but they're yeah, like these yeah. other things. Uh, different. Uh, Dragonborn champions. Uh, we get three different kinds, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're, they're sort of cool NPCs. Uh, am, am I thinking? I'm thinking of. No, I'm thinking so of. There's, there's two. Now. There's the yep. champions and the followers. Okay, these yep. are okay in that they're obviously Dragonborn and they, they each have a, you know, a breath and a sort of you know they, they they have something that captures the fact that they're dragonborn and they're a little higher cr like seven six and eight to represent the type they come from and we can just jump as you mentioned there's this dragonborn followers mm-hmm. those are like just 
NPCs, CRs two, three, and five that are just humanoids that follow a dragon. Mm-hmm. They don't really have anything that's dragony about them. Yeah. So Other like, than, if this yeah. is just an NPC that follows a dragon, why wouldn't I just use an existing NPC yeah. stat block? Why yeah. do I need this? The, the dragon, the dragon blessed could easily be just a cleric, because uh, it's got clerical spells. Um, the dragon chosen can just be like a fighter, yeah. and uh, the dragon speaker is like a, a, a bardy type. Uh, yeah, I don't get it. Yeah, the but, art makes them look like they're very dragony. Yeah, and the stat block does not. Yep, it's true. Um, we get a dragon flesh. Grafter. These are two monsters. A grafter, which is the bizarre idea of a creature that attaches dragon parts to itself or eats them and becomes like part dragon, which I just thought like this should be a template. Like, why is it a particular CR? Um, like this is CR three. And I'm like, you know, or not. I mean, doesn't it depend on what kind of dragon you stapled to yourself? Or and then if I guess if you go far enough in this process, you become dragon flesh abomination, which is CR six. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah fine yeah uh we also have the dragonelle which is sort of the lesser a less magical version of a dragon so there's no breath weapon there's not any of the layer actions and stuff it just sort of it's almost like a cross between a dragon and a hippogriff um yeah it's just it flies fly by attack is is something that it has that most dragons don't so that's its thing and they make a big deal about it being used as a steed and comes to answer a fine greater steed spell. So yeah, it's, it's cool. I remember them from previous editions and I don't right. hate, I don't hate having it there if, if needed. Right. Yeah. Uh, then we get dragon turtles, which there was one in a tomb of annihilation that we had. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't remember whether it, what, what version of it was, I was going to look that up while we're looking, but um the um the the they have three crs that provide for us here the cr24 ancient dragon turtle uh and then they have the cr10 young and cr4 wormling um good concepts here the um uh it kind of has your typical dragon things but it has on its it's mythic and it has legendary actions as well mm-hmm. so attack and move are its legendary actions which is pretty lame uh, I mean, just it's just not very creative, right? It's like, fine. <laughs> you can do those things, sure. Yeah. Uh, boiling aura is fun. The idea that it bubbles up all these, um, heats up the water around it, and it's got all this boiling going on for 40 damage. You know, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Mythic actions are a bite. So-so. But then the armor of storms is sort of interesting. You get 40 temps, which is not a whole lot for the dragon turtle. Uh, but any creature touching it takes lightning damage. Mm-hmm. So I like the concepts here. I don't know that I super love the the you know the, the actual math behind it but um but the mm-hmm. concepts are fun yeah the the concepts point to the fact that you want these encounters to take place in deep water um, yeah. because that's where the dragon turtle lives first of all and where it can do most of its damage uh, you know some people know that fire can't go underwater so they'll dive under if they think fire is coming well this fire damage doesn't uh, get slowed down by water. So uh, fire away in the sea. But yeah, and I also like that they give the wormling version so you can have a little mm-hmm. fun with that, with yeah. with sort of lower level characters in a lower level story. Yep. Uh, what else do we have? We have egg hunters. This is, this is weird and I like it. Uh, so egg hunters are parasites that seek specifically seek out dragon eggs and then they they basically suck the yolk out of the dragon eggs and lay their own eggs within the shell i'm like okay that's pretty cool depending on how rare dragons are in your world it may be hard to imagine that these creatures would actually be able to survive uh, especially if dragons protect their eggs like one might think they would what was really weird um was like the the uh, the adult egg hunter is small supposedly it can like puff itself up to look like an egg and it hides with the other eggs in the clutch that a dragon lays and i'm thinking you know i get like a dodo bird 
being able to fool a bird into into uh you know hatching its eggs or whatever those the birds are that do that yeah dragons are freaking smart yeah i mean it yeah this whole premise is really bizarre like yeah and and i like the stories that you could tell with it right the characters sneak in to to a dragon's lair oh there's eggs there and all of a sudden they realize that all the eggs are actually empty or contains these larvae of the egg hunters and then the dragon shows up and thinks that the characters did it right fun cool interesting story the the sort of ecology of it's a little bit wonky but and that's again like i wish that story that you just wove was in the as a suggestion right Right, how to use this monster right like just exactly exactly we we need the how-to as much as we need the stat blocks yeah uh any other stat blocks monsters here in the bestiary that caught your attention yeah there are a couple the elder brain dragon which is this horrible mix of a mind flare elder brain and a dragon um it's it's amazing art i mean just incredible uh and what it has that's interesting is the tadpole brine breath (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is psychic damage and you're infested by lithid tadpoles. So you take damage until you either save three times or have strong curative magic applied. And I like that. That's a neat, you know, save three times is, yeah. is no joke. Yeah. Um, it also has a legendary action to force a caster to end their concentration on a spell. That's an interesting thing. Um, we get the rest of the gem dragons, a ghost dragon, an eye drake, which is when a beholder dreams of a dragon because it's afraid of it, like finding its lair or something. And because beholders can conjure things from their dreams, then it makes this weird flying drake with an eye in its mouth and eyes all over its wings. That's a fun idea. Yeah. Horde mimics are great. And horde <laughs> scarabs. Yeah. What'd you think of those? Like- yeah. I, I think anything that messes with a horde is good story. Yeah. Um, so a horde mimic, obviously. Right, you th- you just defeated this dragon or tricked a dragon or somehow got to the horde, and you think you're you've won, and the horde is like a mimic or part of it is a mimic, uh, yeah. and not only that but a really tough mimic. Uh, yeah, you know, good good times there. Uh, the hollow dragon is interesting. Uh, the dragon itself becomes undead to serve some noble cause, uh, so it can uh, uh, it can expend radiant energy it has a radiant breath and so on yeah Yeah. the horde scarab is interesting in that this is very but not even just a advantage in dragons type thinking but like i want to say specifically it's like dragon magazine type thinking these are the Mm -hmm. kind of things you'd find dragon magazine all the time where it's like right it's this little scarab like the 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 individual one is cr18 Mm -hmm. right and then there's a swarm for cr2 and as a bonus action, it can emit this scale dust, which outlines creatures within 10 feet in blue light for 10 minutes. And any dragon within a mile immediately knows where you are and kind of narrowly track you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's yeah. no joke. No, yeah. That's, and and the, these are, the, like, like I said, these are the kinds of things that as an addition continues, we need because players learn, you know, learn the tropes, they learn their tricks. And so we need something as DMs to up this, up the ante, up the story. Okay, this is your third dragon horde that you found. Well, now this one has scarabs in it. Not only does it have them, the dragon actually brought them in to, uh, to guard it. And you don't know that you're glowing blue. Oh, that's too bad. Uh, that, well, I wonder how, what that's going to mean. Well, what it means is look up because there's a dragon there now. Uh, yeah. and, and these are the things that I want as the, as the edition continues to, to make the game, to add some twists and turns and make the game more interesting. Yeah. I mean, looking back at, you know, fizz bands, cause this, the bestiary chapter six is the last chapter. Um, and I'll say the dragon turtle, that we had before is from the monster manual and it's CR 17. So, mm-hmm. so this gives us different options. Yeah. Um, but looking back on this book as a whole, um, it's a good book, but I don't feel like it did for dragons. What mm-hmm. uh, Van Richten's guide to Ravenloft did for horror. Mm-hmm. Right. 
And I think to me, when I think of, you know, how do we keep this edition really fun and exciting? I would look, I would not look to this book as this would not be what I say, Ooh, you got to make more fizz bands. I would say, take a look at Van Richten's because here you gave me real tools and, and you broke ground in a different way that that's utilitarian versus, mm-hmm. you know, here are the gem dragons, right. That feel very similar. Yeah. I, I have a very similar feeling and part of it. Uh, and I say this as someone who has been in the same situation and has come up with the same result is I feel like this was a different project to start with. I feel mm-hmm. like there was, I feel like there was something else that was supposed to be here. And I don't know if it's a setting. I don't know if it's, you know, an adventure, but I feel like there was a solid core and then it's oh, we need to put this book out when we need a lot more content. So let's just get this content out as, you know, as best we can. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I may be wrong. I'm not working on sure. any inside knowledge there, but just seeing it, it feels like it was one iteration away mm-hmm. from yeah. sort of getting some of the chaff out of there, getting more wheat into it, uh, gluten-free of course, but getting more wheat <laughs> into it yeah. and, uh, and, and making it that sort of book. That's like, Oh, this changes my campaign or right. you know, this, this changes the way I think about dragons. Yeah, I, I agree with it because this book wants to do that and, and it sort of purports to do that, but, yeah. but it doesn't, quite do that it hits us from a bunch of different directions with interesting ideas but doesn't give you quite the tools you would need to enable it um yeah. neither at the grand level of the campaign nor at the specific level because you can look at like the third edition draconomicon mm-hmm. which really has like add these things to your dragons and they're going to be really cool right yeah. and they're very it's very utilitarian or here's exactly what you need to know about a dragon layer and an example of one that you can drop into your next game, mm-hmm. right? Very utilitarian focused. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and this had, this had, it had it up to a point, you know, it, it had this story about dragons across the realms all coming together, but it didn't say like, Hey, here's a really cool campaign. Um, mm-hmm. it, it had tables where you could pull individual roles yeah. out and build a campaign that way, but not, not something that was super solid. So, you know, there absolutely, you can pull lots of neat things from this. And if you're an experienced DM, you can build up on things that are started here to create a, a good campaign. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. I, I just, yeah, I, just to take what we're saying a step further, like if this book said, here's how to use some of these monsters and really cool encounters, to tie in those earlier ideas, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about the idea of this kind of a campaign. Here is an outline of levels one to 10, even for a you know, short campaign, relatively short campaign. Here are the monsters you could throw in at the different levels. Mm-hmm. And here are the kind of air, here's what would be going on. Just as a little outline sketch, one page, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that would be super valuable. Right. Um, take that map, you know, or, or those maps that they show that are really neat maps and say, and here's what's in them at different CRs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Here are these pairings that would make for a cool encounter. Those kinds of things would be really useful. And, and the, and, and I think would, would, would take it beyond where it is, where it's like, like it can generate great ideas, but now you've got to do that work Mm -hmm. and you may be too intimidated to proceed with that work. Yep. Yeah. So it's uh, you know, it's a good book. Um, Maybe people on the DMs guild, have or can continue to um, use stuff that's in it to make their adventures, to make, you know, source books that, that do exactly what we're talking about. Yep. All right. That ladies and gentlemen and friends is what they call a podcast episode. So we want to, what? What? Yeah. (laughs) Believe it or not. Uh, All right. So thank you listeners for being there to be on the receiving end of our voices and our meanderings. Um, And thank you specifically to our patrons who give us a little bit each month to keep these mics shiny and bright. You can become a patron of the show by going to patreon.com slash MMP for Misdirected Mark Productions. 
Teos, where can people find you on the internet? Ooh, you can find my latest article at alphastream.org. On the Twitter, I hide at alphastream. And from the website, you can reach all my other various endeavors. How about you, Sean? I am blogless, but I do have a Twitter handle. Twitter is at Sean Merwin. Or you can follow the podcast Twitter feed at MasteringDND. Mastering Dungeons is a misdirected Mark production. So, Teos, what should we do now that we know everything there is to know about dragons in the known multiverse? Uh, let's attach more elder brains to more monsters and see what we end up with. I'm down with that. I've got my eye on you. <laughs>